The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Hard to Believe, Answering Common Objections to Christianity. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's good to be back with you this morning. Uh, I have uh, enjoyed a few weeks out of the pulpit during the summer, took my family on a little vacation, then um, took the staff to our Acts 29 um, pastors comp. It's actually called a global gathering now, and uh, we enjoyed that time together. Uh, but it's good to be back with you this morning, and I... Now listen, just as a preface, this, what I'm about to do, this doesn't count for my sermon time, okay? This doesn't count, so don't start the clock yet. Whoever's starting the clock, don't start it, all right? I've got a couple major uh, things to talk to you about. Um, first off, when we planted Sacred City, when we started this church roughly six years ago, we moved back to the Quad Cities and started in my home. Um, we were about making disciples and planting churches, and we wanted to work to renew the city. That's, that's our simple mission, right? Make disciples, plant churches, renew the city. And after about six months, and we had a couple missional communities, we realized that we needed a place to gather. We needed a place to meet together um, for our Sunday liturgy, for worship, for the preaching of God's word. And, um, we, but we wanted to be, a, you know, people about renewing the city. And so we found this building, this place, and we moved in here in January, whatever that was, 2012, I think ish, something around there, uh, January 1st, 2012. And if you don't know, this is the second oldest junior theater in the nation. Okay. It's a historical piece of our city. This was a chapel at one time. This whole area was an orphanage for kids who had been orphaned by the, by the Civil War. Um, then the, the buildings burnt down. The cottages out there burnt down and, and actually killed a lot of kids. And so they rebuilt the cottages out of brick, and then they put the slides going down, if you see the slides. And there's a tunnel that goes underneath the whole thing, if you didn't know that. It's pretty cool. 
Um, and, and so this is a historic, this is an important piece of our city. It's a key piece of our city. We meet people all the time who, who grew up in Annie Whitmire, who, who spent time here on this campus. And so when we, when we heard, you know what, we could meet here, we said, all right, let's do that. And we had like 60 people in 350 seats back then, you know, and it swallowed us up. And, and then it, we grew and it came time. We didn't know what to do. And so uh, we, we knew we had to do something. And so uh, we planted a church in, in Moline and, and we sent about 50 or 60 people to Moline to plant a church. And they're over there worshiping and God's doing great things over there. And, and we, we were thinking about moving from here. We didn't, we, we needed a bigger building and uh, we still have that, that problem. And the city of Davenport found, you know, found us, emailed us, said, no, stay here. We want you to stay here. We like what you're doing. The money that you spend, you know, the, 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 that we pay for all of this and allows them to get all new lights, allows them to rebuild the stage, allows them to do a lot of great things. And we said, all right, you know, we want to be about the good of the city, so we're going to stick around here. We're going to stay here. And we got one of these cottages down there. We remodeled that cottage, put about $65,000 into that cottage uh, for our offices, for our kids' space. And soon as that cottage was, soon as the paint was dry and we sent out 60 people, 60 more people just showed up, right? I have, I prepared, if you were here, you know, I prepared everyone. It's going to feel small. It's going to feel different. We're going to be planning a church. We sent 60 people away. We sent some great leaders away, some great musicians away. We felt the pain of that. But then literally our numbers just like, they just like 60 more people just came. And so it didn't solve any problems of space for us at all. Uh, just created more because we sent more leaders away and more musicians away. It made it harder for everybody. And we said, okay, well, and we keep making babies too, all right? A third of our church are babies, all right? Our kids. And so, okay, we, the paint gets dry on this building and we already need another one. And so we said, all right, we're going to do this. And, and we, we, we raised the money. We did that or we, we've got the money. I think the majority of the money. And we started that project. We hired a contractor. We got in. We thought it was going to be a three-month project, and they start uncovering things and they find asbestos, okay? And so that's what happened down there. And that's like a cottage 11. They found asbestos. It's taken three months. We're here for the city. I have to remind ourselves that, right? But the city moves slowly. And so it's taken three months to find a contractor to abate it, to remove it, and also find... the. This is the city's language. Find the money to pay for the abatement. Well, we were thankful that they're the ones finding the money. And so we said, okay, we'll try to be patient. So it's been three months of us doing that and being patient. And now they just came back to us and said, August 14th, it's supposed to be abated. They're going to remove all of the asbestos, make it perfectly safe for us, for all of our children. And, uh, and then we're, getting, we're, we're back on the project. And we've probably got, I would say, another two months of work uh, to do in that cottage to renew it for more classrooms and a few more offices, okay? Now, this is a long announcement, I know. The city has loved the work that we've done in our cottages so much that they want to do the same thing we did over there here. We cheered and we were just like, yes, you know, I'm tired of these retro chairs that you sit down and they're, every time you move, right? You let the world know that you're moving around, right? I I'm tired of that. I'm thankful for that. They said originally, it's not going to bother you guys at all. I kind of, yeah, I don't know. Now, that's not quite the story. And so in a, at the end of August, we're going to be basically kicked out of here for two, possibly three weeks. 
Okay, now the good news is we're getting all new chairs, we're getting all new carpet, we're getting all new paint. Um, it's going to look a whole lot better for us. It's going to be better if, if, when we get back to this place. But what we decided to do, we looked around everywhere. We looked at high schools and, and, and the problem is we have 100 children, right? And so you need classrooms and space and we'd have to take all of our kids stuff. And so here's what we're doing, all right? We're doing an old school tent meeting for three weeks, okay? But, but, no, no, it ain't old school. It's my school. It's air conditioned tent, okay? <laughs> if you know me, you know. Not in August we ain't, nuh-uh. I'm the one working, no way. So we're getting air conditioned. We're going to be an air conditioned tent out here in the grassy area. Big tent. Kids will still be in the kids space. Remodel still goes on. This goes on. I think we'll let you know, like I think in three weeks, they do need our help because we, we told them we want to make it two weeks out, not three. So like after the gathering, I think in two or maybe three weeks, they want our help in removing these chairs. And, and that would help them out a lot. And so if we can, some of the men, if we could, or women, if you want, stick around and we're going to pull out these chairs and, and help them get a good jump start on this project. Now, with all that said, we're still feeling growing pains, and we're, we're a little ways out, but we still don't know what the Lord's doing. Um, if we're going to, we, you know, we went to two services for Easter. We had to do that, um, and eventually we might have to go to two services. I didn't like it. I'll just let you know. I didn't like doing two services, and, uh, and so I, I don't know what else the Lord's going to do, but we're, we're just open to whatever he's doing, but we want you to be praying for us as uh, the, the elders and the pastors of the church, please be praying for us because this is a lot of things. Like I like, if you read the New Testament, like I want to preach the word. That's what I want to do. I want to make disciples. I really don't want to organize projects and remodel buildings and, and do these things. That's not what I want to do. It feels like a weight on me. And then making decisions about, you know, where, where to meet and all this stuff. It's just, it, it weighs heavy on us and it weighs heavy on me. So please be praying for that. Now, <laughs> this is crazy. In, in the midst of all of this, and we got construction on the road out here. It's just like, come on, right? Like, what's going on? And in the midst of all of this, I get a text message while I'm on vacation from Pastor Sam over in Moline. And uh, they're like us. They're growing, uh, you know, slowly and surely. And, and God's doing good things over there. But a organized church, an established church, um, with the, they have, they've told us they have the average age of about 75. They've got about 50 people, an average age of about 75. They've realized that they're going downhill fast. And they're just too, this is their words, they're just too old. Nobody wants to come to their church. But they have a phenomenal building. I'm just going to say that. Phenomenal building for, for a smaller church. Roughly about, I would say about $750,000, $800,000 building in the, in the center city of Moline. Perfect loca location. And they've decided that in the middle of October, it's their last Sunday. They said, we're just dwindling and dying, and we're just going to go out, and it's their 110th anniversary. We're going to go out on our 110th anniversary and celebrate what the Lord's done for the past 110 years. And we found out about this. We talked to them. We've met with their board, and we said, well, how about Sacred City Church continues the legacy of preaching the gospel, making disciples, and renewing the city that you've done for about 110 years? And, and I'm just going to tell you this now. We said, we have a lot of people. We're, not, we're pretty short on resources. Um, this is just crazy. Um, what, what do you think about, about $60,000 for this building? Their, bo their board voted last week 
and they approved our offer. Now, do the math there. Uh, this, was a, this was a God thing, we believe. This was a God offer. Um, you know, obviously my mind goes, well, I wonder if they would have took a dollar. That's what I think. You know? <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, uh, no, but honestly, the building has been perfect. It's the upkeep. It's phenomenal building. It's not like this, you know, this weight around our ankle. Everything's upkeep. Everything's beautiful. You walk in, it's already a beautiful building. It's, it's a gorgeous building. Now, that's the board. The board approved it. The, 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 the congregation has to vote. The congregation is voting next Sunday. And so you can be in prayers for our congregation in Moline. Um, if you know anything about Moline, I'll just let you know. Um, it, it's the first Christian church of Moline. Um, it's straight down from uh, the ice cream shop that I always forget. Not Whitey's. Country style ice cream towards the river, like one block on the right-hand side. Beautiful building, beautiful location. And we think that God's moving for our, 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 um, our church in Moline. And, uh, you know, we're really, we're really thankful. But then I'm like, come on, Lord. I'm dealing with all this construction and they're getting buildings? Like, what? But so you can pray for them. This is God. This really is God moving. And it, we honestly, I've been praying for that for about seven years, right? If it would have been in Iowa, we would have been like writing the check and saying, do it right now. We want it. Um, but so God's moving over there. So that, I know this is a long announcement. I told you there's a lot. to. I don't know where to share this with you guys at. The city, half of you are on. Half of you read our emails. Half, so this is the only time I get to share it. So there's a lot for us to be praying about and thinking about as we're moving forward. And please do that. Okay. Um, and I, hopefully I'm not forgetting anything uh, when it comes to that. But that, So that's going on um, next week. And then we've got all the building remodel that's going on at the, at the end of August here. And then uh, last thing I wanted to share with you is you guys, hopefully you got one of these as you came in. And this is a brief introduction to 1 Peter. And so we want every family to get one of these. Next Sunday, we are starting um, probably at least six to eight month study through the book of 1 Peter. If you know us, you know we study verse by verse through books of the Bible. Now, if you came to our, um, our Bible seminar that we had or whatever it was called, I can't remember now, um, we, we studied 1 Peter. And you guys are probably, you, it whet your appetite, you're probably already excited. But listen, 1 Peter is a book that was written to people who, it's called elect exiles. They were people who had become Christians and they were living in a predominantly non-Christian environment, not even predominantly, just overwhelmingly pagan environment. And they had to learn how to live like very weird people. I'm just gonna say it like that. They had to learn, learn how to live in a culture that, that persecuted them, not by killing them, not by beating them, but by marginalizing them, making them out to be weirdos with weird beliefs. And if you don't know, we are on the cusp of the same thing happening in our country, okay? Christians are about to be, if we're not already, weirdos. They, our culture at large does not understand our beliefs. They don't understand the way we view human beings, the way we view personhood, the way we view God, the way we view reality. And so we're being marginalized and our views are getting, you know, the people that hold our views are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And therefore it's important for us to learn how to live like exiles, how to live like people on the margins of society, how to live in a sense like weirdos, <laughs> not be weirdos, but 
except the fact that that's how people see us. And so uh, we're going to be studying the book of 1 Peter. We're starting that next week. And so we look forward to it. Pick one of these up and you can read the brief introduction, get you caught up on where we're at. I would encourage you, start reading 1 Peter in your time alone with the Lord. As you're going on, it's going to be a great eight months together. Now, I, like I said, none of that counted. None of that counted. Start your watches at 1017 right now. Okay, let me pray. Father, I do thank you for the work that you're doing in our young church. I thank you for how you're just shaping us into people who love you, people who know you, people who make disciples, people who plant churches, people who work for the renewal of those in our city. We want our city to be a better place to live because the kingdom of God is breaking into it. And God, that happens as we study your word and as we're molded and shaped by you. And so I pray this morning that you would help me. I am a sinner. I am a weak man. Um, I am unable to stand up here and proclaim the gospel um, in in an effective way. I can't change people's minds. God, I am so aware of my inability this morning. And so I beg that your spirit would anoint me to preach the gospel with boldness that we need the gospel this morning. We need the good news. We need to hear from you. And so would you speak to your people when you give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying? I pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16. If you would turn your Bibles there, starting in verse 19. Now, for the past six weeks, we have been in a series called Hard to Believe. In this series of messages, we, we have been addressing some of the most common objections that people in our culture have with Christianity. We've done this for two reasons. One, to answer those objections if you are a person who has them. And secondly, to uh, inform Christians how to answer these questions for their non-Christians friends or, or their skeptical friends in the culture that we want to equip you to be able to answer these questions. And I pray uh, that we've served you well in that. You can go back and listen to our sermons online. And today we're finishing up this series discussing what could simply be called the problem of hell. Isn't the concept of an eternal hell contradictory with the existence of a loving and sovereign God? Or as it is often framed in its most popular form, how could a loving God send people to hell for eternity? Many people cannot see the concept of hell, or many people do, many people do see the concept of hell as one of the greatest turnoffs to Christianity. They cannot stomach it. They cannot reconcile the thought And many of them have this thought of God as an angry judge who consigns people to hell for eternity. And then the Bible's teaching that he's kind, generous, loving, and gracious. See, how, it seems like hell and love are at odds with one another. And this thought is so prevalent that many ministers and pastors have scrapped the idea of hell altogether from their preaching and teaching ministries. As one young man recently told me in talking about church, he said, I'm all about love and I want to go to a church that talks about love, not fire, brimstone, judgment, and hell. So the thought goes, if we want to reach people who have an aversion to hell, we better not talk about it. 
It, you, I usually respond to that statement with something like this. What do you think of Jesus? What, what do you think of him? Was he the type of loving person you're talking about? And usually people say something like, yeah, absolutely. Jesus is what I'm talking about. I love Jesus. Jesus was the type of guy who loved everyone. He healed people. He welcomed the most notorious sinners uh, and he ate with them. Jesus was all about love. Churches should be more like him. And I usually then agree with them wholeheartedly and follow that up with something like this. You're exactly right about Jesus. But did you know that Jesus preached about hell more than anyone else in the Bible? You, you have a handful of statements about hell if you take out what Jesus said about hell. Jesus the one, is the one who preached on hell so often. Now listen, this should show us something really important. Jesus believed in hell. Jesus taught that people will go to an eternal hell. And yet Jesus was the most loving, welcoming, hospitable man that has ever lived. He was not hostile at all. He was not judgmental. He was gentle and humble. In fact, I'm going to go so far to say this morning that without an, a proper understanding of hell, you won't be able to understand the world that we live in. You won't be able to, able to make it a better place specifically. You won't be able to understand yourself and that you will be unable to experience and understand the love of God. Now, I realize that's a bold statement or maybe those are three bold statements. Without hell, you don't know the world, you don't know yourself, and you don't know the love of God. I realize this is all, those are all counterintuitive, and we're going to examine each of those claims individually, but first I need to dispel a few really common myths. Now, if you go to a fair, we were just on vacation, and they had this little kids' fest thing, and one of the things they do at the kids' fest, or you can see it at a fair, is a caricature artist, right? Now, if you have a low self-esteem, never go to a caricature artist, right? If your ears stick out a little bit, well, you're going to get this picture. You look like Dumbo, right? You're like, and you're, you'll be walking away like, is this how people see me? I kind of thought I was moderately handsome, right? Like, don't go to one of these. Now, what is a caricature artist? A caricature artist takes some things that are true about you and exaggerates them, right? It's not a true picture of who you are as a person, of what you actually look like. Now, here's the problem. Most of us, have a caricature idea, concept, view of hell, okay? And so before I get into showing how a proper view of hell will help you live in this world and understand this world in a better way, help you understand yourself and live with yourself in a better way, and help you really experience the love of God, first I need to kind of dispel a few of these myths and, and break apart the caricature, okay? First off, many people think that God created, uh, well, let me just say it like this. In Genesis 1, the Bible says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It does not say, in the beginning, God created heavens, heaven, earth, and hell. Okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heaven and earth were created to be inhabited by mankind. God did not create hell for people. 
He didn't, in the beginning, say, okay, I'm going to create earth, and then I'm going to create heaven for the good people, and I'm going to create hell for those who, who disobey me. No, in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth, right? He didn't create hell for people. Now, hell was God's response to the first rebellion, and that first rebellion happened by Satan and his angels, or what are now demons. And so at this, God created the angelic world, angel, spiritual forces, okay? God creates this world, and this angel chooses to rebel from him, and God, because he is perfect in himself, has to, have, has to do something with this disobedience, this rebellion, this destruction, this uh, person who wants to destroy his good world. And so what he does is he creates hell, for Satan and his angels, okay? He creates hell and he puts them there. Human beings are still meant for heaven and for the earth at this time, okay? Hell was created for Satan and his angels. Hell is the place where, listen, injustice is punished. That God had to send that injustice somewhere and hell is the place that he sent this injustice, now, what happens, we learn in Genesis 3, is that mankind does the crazy thing and sides with God's enemy, sides with the devil. And therefore, anyone who sides with the devil and chooses to follow in his footsteps and, and, and perpetuate this injustice could possibly end up in this place called hell. Now, I wanted to dispel these myths, th th this myth for you as we get into it, and I'm going to there's, there's one more that I'm going to get to in, in a minute that God, hell isn't a place where God sends people and locks them there and torments them. It's not what it's there for. It's not what it's meant to be. Okay? I'm going to get there in a minute. I'm not going to go there right now. All right? So let me just, that was a few myths. Let me get into our topic this morning. I, I think hell helps us understand our world and helps us learn to live rightly in our world. I know that's a big thing, so let me get in. One of the first things you're going to notice as you study the life of Jesus is that Jesus, he, wasn't, he didn't just come and preach salvation. He didn't have altar calls. He didn't say, I want you to raise your hand right now and accept, Jesus, accept me into your heart so that you don't go to hell. He wasn't thinking just in these spiritual dimensions of hell. Like when you die, you're going to go somewhere, heaven or hell. Jesus didn't talk like that. Jesus didn't minister like that. Instead, Jesus came ministering to the real physical needs of the world. He came preaching the gospel to the poor. He came feeding the poor. He came healing the sick. He came bringing the kingdom of God to these areas of injustice and bringing justice and goodness and grace to these real areas of problem and pain for people. In the parable that our reader read for us this morning, Jesus, in his teaching ministry, is confronting the inequality being experienced between a rich man and a poor man. That there's real injustice going on here and Jesus is confronting it. Let's read it quickly. Chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. Okay, look here. He's well-dressed, right? Now, we don't, most of us, we're not, you know, 
well, I'm not even going to get into that. He was well-dressed. He shopped at Von Mar. All right, there we go. All right. And who feasted sumptuously every day. Okay, sumptuously. What that word actually means is he ate for his enjoyment. Okay, there's people in the world who will eat what you give them, right? They are so hungry that they live on rice and beans or they live on bread and water. There's, there's people out there like that. This man is not one of them. This man would be like, hmm, what do we want for dinner tonight? What am I in the mood for, right? He feasted sumptuously. I think many of us are probably in the same, we have the same experience. This is our relationship with food. We can really eat whatever we want to eat most of the time, okay? And at his gate, okay, where does he live? He lives in a comfortable house. He has a gate in front of his house, okay? Right now, we're seeing that there's a rich man, this rich man. Now, listen, 99% of the people in this room, you say rich man, and they're like, I bet that guy's rich. Very few of us characterize ourselves as rich, but the things that, he, that, this, that Jesus is using to describe this rich man, he eats what he wants, he, he has pretty nice clothes, he lives in kind of a gated community or maybe a nice little suburban neighborhood, right? Crime is on the outside of his gates, poverty is on the outside of his gates, the city's problems are on the outside of his gates. See where we're going here? He's well-fed. He lives in a nice neighborhood, right? He keeps the beggars downtown below Locust. He's in a nice neighborhood. And then we've got this poor man. Look at the poor man. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Now, that's going to be very important towards the end of this. And this man, Lazarus, was covered with sores. He, he wasn't leprous because he would have been sent away. He's got some kind of skin infection, some kind of skin disease. He has, he's lacking proper health care. He's pr- lacking uh, the ability to care for himself. Who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. So he's literally a garbage picker. This is how he's feeding himself. He knows this guy is so wealthy, he's throwing away good food and I can sit right here and I can wait for them to bring out the trash and I can go in there and I can eat it and I can be, I can live and I can exist. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. guy is in agony. All the while, the rich man went about his daily life. One man flourishes while another man suffers. And the rich man who sees the suffering of another human being, who, if you read Genesis, human beings are made a mago day. They're made in the image of God. They're more precious than animals. A human being made in the Imago day, this rich man looks at and ignores his cry, ignores the injustice being experienced by this man. He does nothing to alleviate this man's suffering. This, my friends, is hell on earth. How can one human being 
who has the ways and means refuse to help out another human being who is suffering. And I'm not talking just about, you know, if you think about those in Africa, you're talking about someone right outside your gates, someone right outside your neighborhood, and you see them suffering, and you do nothing to alleviate that pain. Well, no doubt, and this is why Jesus, one of the reasons Jesus is telling the story is because the rich man probably thought that the poor man had chosen this life or earned this life through his bad decisions and rough living. He would see this man and go, I wonder what got him there. I wonder if he got an addiction. Probably can't work. Probably doesn't like to work. You know what? More, More than that, I bet you he's cursed by God. I bet you the reason he's poor is because he's a sinner and he hasn't repented and he's not following God. He's not walking in God's ways. And so therefore he's under the curse of God. This man thought he would look at himself and this is how the religious of the day, they looked at themselves. They would look at themselves and see their wealth and their uh, comfort as a gift from God and poverty was a curse from God. They got good things from God because they obeyed him and the poor got bad things from God because they disobeyed him. Now, this is just one small example that Jesus is using of the great injustices in our world. And Jesus here is teaching us, now listen, that this is very shocking for our modern ears, that hell is the final answer to all injustice in our world. That hell is the place where justice is finally served. Hell is the place where these wrongs done on earth are finally righted. I want you to skip to verse 25 and look at verse 25. He's Jesus, or, But Abraham said, now let me go ahead and just read it, I'm sorry. I'm going to go and look at verse 22. We'll just read through it, and then I'll talk about 25. 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Okay? He's in, I'm just going to say heaven just for the purposes of this. He's in heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So the rich man notices the poor man, knows who he is, knows him by name. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. You in your lifetime received your... You got what you wanted. I'm going to say this. You got what you worshipped. You've already received your good things. Now look at this. Look at the next one. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. See, this injustice that's being experienced, God heals it, God fixes it, but the finality of his fix happens in hell. It's the great reversal that happens where all wrongs are finally righted. Now, this is, this is why I think that the only way to really understand our world is if you have a biblical concept or category of hell. See, injustice 
is hell on earth. Christians are to see that and work with all their might to alleviate that suffering, to what like God is going to do, get the hell off of earth, that we are as Christians meant to fight against this injustice and fight this hell on earth and bring the kingdom of God as much as we possibly can. We're to remove all the hell possible from our cities. Jesus tells us, though, where does that hell go eventually? All of that hell, all of that injustice eventually winds up in this place, this lake of fire, this Hades, this hell leaves our earth. Now, I want you to think, I don't have to do this very much. I'm going to whip through this really quick. But sometimes, because most of us, and I'm just going to say it, most of us in this room probably live above locusts. Most of us live a somewhat suburban life, somewhat comfortable existence that we're, we're almost blind to the injustices, the radical injustices in our world. Did you know just 23 years ago, this is so crazy to me, like I was in junior high, in the Rwandan genocide, it's estimated that over 800,000 people were killed in 100 days from April 7th to mid-July, 1994. And actually, I was a freshman in high school. And these people weren't the result of a nuclear bomb blast. They were tortured, raped, and hacked to death by their neighbors with machetes. Genocide, and there's been plenty of them. Genocide is hell on earth. Did you know that the trafficking of humans, women and children specifically for sexual exploitation is the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world right now? At least 20.9 million adults and children are bought and sold worldwide into commercial sex servitude. Two million Children are exploited every year in the global commercial sex trade. Human trafficking is hell on earth. Now, it's been said to me when I talk about hell, isn't hell overkill? We sin and we get punished for eternity for it? Isn't the concept just ludicrous? Doesn't it make God out to be a moral monster? Doesn't an eternal punishment far outweigh any crime done on this earth? First off, that statement is most often made by a person who lives in the comfort of a privileged middle-class suburban life. If your wife had been raped, if your children's arms had been cut off, if your child had been stolen from you and sold into the sex trade, what is the appropriate punishment for such a person? How do you alleviate their suffering? How do you make that right? What would it take for justice to be served? If you or your ancestors were bought and sold like cattle, what What would it take to make that right? I was watching a show on Netflix and it was pretty dark. 
and a man in it was a serial rapist and murderer. And he'd finally been caught. But once caught, he began to try to kill himself to escape his trial and punishment. And the lead detective who had been trying to capture him for months had to flip roles. And now she began to try to save this man. She began to try to keep this man alive and prevent him from killing himself. And she said this, when, she, when, she, when he's like, why are you trying to save me? She said this, I don't want you to get off that easy. You have brought, she knew that this man had brought countless evil into the world. He had tortured people. He had ruined entire families and his death wasn't going to solve anything. His death wasn't going to make anything right. It was the easy way out. But hell teaches us something different. Hell is where God judges justly. Everyone gets what they deserved in hell. All of the injustices in the world get their fitting reward. When Hitler put a gun to his head and and killed himself after World War II, we look and we say, that's unjust. He just got, got off easy. He did not get off easy. He's waiting his judgment. He's like the rich man here in hell himself. And God is making all things right. Now, Miroslav Volf, he's a Croatian theologian. He's written several books. Uh, One of them, I think, was called Exclusion and Embrace. And in that, he was a Croatian who lived during the Balkans and and he experienced the ravages of war and kind of the tribalism that went on there and the rape and the murder and just the sacking of villages. And he says this, when someone commits violence against you, or someone kills your wife, or someone kills your child, they commit an injustice, a harsh, violent injustice against, against you. There is something inside of us as human beings that wants to respond violently. This is why, you know, in different tribe, tribes and, and in the Middle East, there's so much violence going on because somebody bombs me and kills my family, and I want to bomb them and kill their family. There's so much, you know, tit for tat and response that happens when we've experienced that type of injustice. And this is what's so interesting. He's a scholar, and and many kind of liberal-minded scholars think we just need to get rid of hell, we need to get rid of this concept, it's perpetuating violence. And Miroslavov, who's lived through these atrocities, he says, absolutely not. Only hell, only hell and the concept of a final judgment can actually empower a person to live for peace now because you know that God will someday put everything right. So he's saying, I don't, if, even though I've experienced this type of injustice and my people have been killed, I don't have to go out and kill those people because I know that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and God will take care of it either on this earth now or in eternity in hell. And so I don't have to respond in violence. So believing in hell is the only way to really understand our world and really you know, enable, be able to live at peace with all the violence and all the chaos and all the injustice that's going on in our world. It tells us, hell kind of tells us what's wrong with the world. This injustice, that's what's wrong with the world. The Bible puts another look, sin. That's what, inju- it's injustice. That's what's wrong with our world. 
and believing that God will judge those who perpetuate injustice is the power that enables us not to retaliate when we're sinned against and we're mistreated. Now, that's my first kind of point, right? Understanding hell helps us understand our world, helps us live differently in it, helps us work to get the hell out of our world. But secondly, this one might take you by surprise. Hell is, understanding hell is really the only way to understand yourself. Now, every week up here, a pastor opens up this gathering and says something like, for all of you who want everything in our world to be made right. Now, that is a deep ache in the soul of our church, and that is a deep angst in the soul of a Christian. We see the injustice and we beg God to do something. We want our world to be made right. And we're told he's doing it and he's going to completely finish it and clean us up and fix our world. Eventually it's coming in the new heavens and the new earth. We want genocide to stop. We want sex trafficking to stop. We want abortion to stop. We want racism to stop. We want every human being to have access to good food and health care. Martin Luther King said it, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And we are a people who long for our God to make everything right and who also work for it in our cities. But this is what's, let's just say interesting. When Jesus taught on hell, when we talk about what's wrong with our world, we're really talking about fruit. But when Jesus talked about hell, he talked about root, the root of issue, the root of the issue. When Jesus talked on hell, he focused really on four things. If you follow all of his parables, he focused on greed. Why do nations take over other nations? They're greedy. Maybe they want their resources. Maybe they want more land. Lust. Violence. And pride. And pride specifically, Jesus addressed religious pride, religious hypocrisy. Now, when we take a close look at our world, we see that all those four, those are the forces that are actually underneath all the injustice that's going on. They're the forces that are destroying our world. We despise the sex trade and what it's doing to little children. God says, I'm going to destroy those powers. I'm going to send them to hell. I'm getting them off this earth. I will wipe the hell off the earth. But here's the problem. Jesus doesn't just hate the sex trade and the pimps. Jesus hates the lust that's driving it. Jesus doesn't just hate genocide. He hates the greed and the superiority and the violence that's driving it. Jesus hates the religious pride that leaves one religion to, 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 to punish another religion or, or to try to wipe them off the, the planet or to say we're better than you. He hates that religious pride. Now listen, this is, this is a, the bad news. If I can be really honest with myself, those things are in me. I feel lust in me. I feel greed in my heart. If someone is mean to my kid, violence sings her siren tune. In the moments where I'm most honest, I can admit that deep down, 
I want to be a big deal. I want to be made much of. And I can easily focus on my own needs and wants and turn a blind eye to those who are suffering around me. See, the powers of hell, it seems, are at work in my heart. The fires of hell are already burning in my soul. And if we really take a good, honest look inside our hearts, I think maybe we can admit that hell already exists inside our human hearts. The desire to oppress, superiority we want to feel over others. If you've ever been addicted to anything, you should feel this hell in your soul. Because a fire... You feed a fire, and as much as you put in it, it just burns and burns and burns. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what an addiction is, any type of addiction. Whether you're addicted to exercise, whether you're addict- addicted to reading, whether you're addicted to alcohol, whether you're addicted to the accolades of people, whether you're addicted to money, you're never satisfied, and you just got to keep feeding the fire more and more and more, and eventually it burns up your entire life. Hell is inside of our hearts. Now, what does that look like? What does this hell look like in us? Well, I think Jesus' parable here does a good job of explaining it. Now, let me, let me make it really simple. What is hell? Hell is simply self-centeredness multiplied times eternity. Let's take a look. Verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham... Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. We learn that the rich man here knew of Lazarus. He knows his name. He's aware of him. He recognizes him. So Jesus here is showing us that he's telling this parable to confront the self-centeredness and the selfishness and the injustice displayed by the rich man towards Lazarus. Selfishness is basically, I got to deal with my own problems. I got to deal with my own issues. That guy can figure out his own thing. Now listen, we're trying to answer this question. How can a loving God send people to hell? It could be said, this is one of those caricatures I want to break apart. It could be said that God doesn't send anyone to hell. Hell is already burning inside of us, and they willingly choose to go to hell to feed the flame of the hell inside of us through their own self-centeredness. That we want to be the center of the universe. We don't want to bend our knee to God. We don't want to live humbly and rightly before our God. We want to be the center of of the universe. We want to order our life. We want to choose our identity. We want to live for our own desires. C.S. Lewis says this, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. This parable is making that very same point. This rich man was self-centered. His identity was in his status, being rich, being comfortable, being not like that poor man. He loved the comfort and the importance that he felt as being in the upper middle class. 
and he disdained the poor man. He looked down on him. And the shocking thing, the thing, now listen, you can read this and you can get scared, right? Flames, eternal torment. Oh, this is terrible. How could a loving God do this? If you, if you feel that way, you've missed the point. Look how this man responds. Verse 24, I'm going to read it again. He calls out, Father, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Okay, that, that sounds pretty good. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. This rich man is in hell, and he wants a little bit of relief, a drop of cold water. Isn't that interesting? Just a drop. He doesn't beg to be removed. He doesn't say, take me to heaven. I've made a big mistake. Get me out of this place. He says, no, no, no. Just get, I, I don't have a problem with where I'm at. Just give me a drop of cold water. And look, at how, look, what, it, look what he does here. Even in hell, the rich man still thinks he's the boss. Oh, oh, Father Abraham. Right. Oh, I know. I recognize that guy up there. He was a big deal in the old covenant. Father Abraham, hey, send Lazarus down here. I need a, I need a drink of water. I need a little drip of water. Could you send Lazarus down here? He doesn't talk to Lazarus. Why? Because he still thinks he's the rich man. He still thinks he's somebody, and this servant is up there in heaven, and oh, just send the servant down. His identity was in his riches. His identity was in his superiority. He was proud. His identity was in his religious pride. He's in hell, and he's bossing people around still. He doesn't beg to be taken out of the place. That's a little bit of comfort. He's happy where he's at. I would like a waiter down here every once in a while just for a little drip of water. That'd be nice. He still thinks that he's the rich man and Lazarus is the servant. He hasn't begged to get out. He still thinks the world revolves around him and poor people are on this earth to serve his agenda. He's ordering people around. He wants a little bit of comfort in this God-forsaken place. See, hell is locked from the inside. He doesn't want out. And it's eternal torment. See, people in hell, this is what they want. And they, they might not know it in this life exactly. What they want is to be away from God. What they want is to be away from anyone who could tell them anything, who could say, you know what, that money that I gave you, oh, did you know that I gave you that? Yeah, yeah, I helped you get the college degree. I helped you land the job. I, I, did you choose to be born in this country? Did you choose to live in this neighborhood? I helped you get all those things, and now I need a little bit of it. If my identity's in my riches, I say, who are you to take any of my money? See, People in hell don't want a God to, who can tell them what to do, who can place requirements on their life. And so the only place to get away from God is hell. It's the only God-forsaken place in all of creation. And so God doesn't send people to hell because he's an angry judge. The fires of hell are burning in our soul, and we have a, a choice of what we can do with it. And we will, if we let those flames continue, they create our own hell of selfishness. C.S. Lewis goes on to say in his book, I think it's the book, Great Divorce. I didn't look it up. I'm coming out of memory. 
that he, he has this analogy of hell. And he says, hell, because it's so driven by self-centeredness, hell is this persistent getting out, getting away from other people. And so his concept of hell is there's no families, there's no friends. Everybody just tries to get farther and farther and farther away from one another. Just more isolated and more dark and more away from, and it just, they're just, their selfishness, their self-centeredness is being multiplied times eternity. See, when we die, eternity is the great multiplier. The lust in your heart. Can you imagine if you had eternity to act on that lust? The hate, the murder, the injustice in your heart. What if that got multiplied by eternity? That creates hell. That is hell. It's the definition of hell. Now listen. Can you, hell is this self-centeredness multiplied by eternity. Can you honestly say that you aren't self-centered? How often do you think about your own needs, your own wants, your own desires? I get mad at myself. You ever just get fed up with yourself? You're like Jim Carrey and Liar Liar. What are you doing? I'm kicking my, I'm beating myself up. Like I'm so tired of always being focused on my own needs and my own wants, and it just wakes me up in the morning. How often do you think about the broken in our city? How often do you think about the lost? How often do you think about the poor and the addicted? How often do you reach out to them to help them? See, we all look at the great injustices in our world, and we all want them gone. I think most of us would say, okay, if hell is the place God's going to take all injustice and all brokenness and he's going to put it there, okay, I'm all for that. Get the hell off our earth. That's what we want. We want heaven. That's what happens in the new heavens and the new earth. The heavens come down, the earth comes up, everything's remade in the new heavens and the new earth. And we get to inhabit this new, created, redeemed, restored earth forever with God. That's what happens. So we're all like, yeah, get the hell off our earth. Get the brokenness out there. We want the rape, the murder, the racism, the sex trafficking abolished from our planet. God tells us he's going to do all of that. But here's the problem. The seeds of all of those great injustices are already planted in our heart. Do we really think that God could cleanse this world of evil, of all lust, greed, violence, and pride, and not throw us out too? This leads to my final point. Only when you understand hell will you really understand the extent to which God loves you. See, the injustice that we see in the world, the seeds of that injustice are present in every single one of us, of our hearts. We have the fires of hell burning in our chests. This is why we lust, why we lie, why we cheat, why we gossip, why do we, we try to convince others that we are better than we really are. And the real question is, what are you going to do about it? The fires of self-centeredness are burning in your soul and you can feed that flame and give into it, give yourself over to it, just like the rich man here. And that's, that's why Abraham says, you got what you wanted. 
He wanted to be made much of. He wanted his life to be all about him. He wanted to spend his riches and to eat sumptuously and to ignore the cries of the poor. And he got what he wanted. That fire of selfishness that's burning in your soul, if you feed it like the rich man did, you will end up in hell. Or you can fight the fire. How do you fight the fires of hell that are burning in your soul? You let Jesus, it sounds simple, you let Jesus help you. Now listen, this is where we get this. You let Jesus quench that fire for you. We see this in our parable. Jesus uses a few storytelling techniques here uh, to help his listeners get the point that we might miss because we're so far removed from first century Judaism. First, listen, this is the only parable in all Jesus's parables, okay? He told a lot of parables, right? Listen to this. This is the only parable that names a person. It's always rich man, poor man. It's always young ruler, this guy. It's always that. It's, he says, rich man, poor man named Lazarus. He's using a storytelling technique to help his people understand the meaning of the parable. This man is called Lazarus. Lazarus is the Greek form of Eleazar. And Eleazar means he whom God has helped. He whom God has helped. You read this story and you're like, rich man goes to hell, poor man goes to heaven. That's all it says. Doesn't say he poor man prayed the sinner's prayer on his deathbed and God took him to heaven says, no, poor man's name is Lazarus, he whom God has helped. Jesus names this poor man so that his listeners knew he was speaking of a poor Christian man. He was speaking of a poor believer, someone who trusted in God for his salvation. Lazarus, he whom God has helped. Lazarus, let God help him extinguish the fires of hell from his soul. Now I could argue that this right here is the gospel, the good news in a nutshell. A Christian is a person who knows they can't help themselves. It's common, God helps those who help themselves. That's not a Bible verse and it's actually contrary to everything that's taught in the Bible. God helps those who admit they can't help themselves. Christians know that the fires of hell are burning inside of us and there's nothing we can do to put out that flame. We are self-centered creatures. We want to build our lives on anything other than the free grace of God. And if we continue to live like that, our selfishness will take us to the most self-centered eternity possible and that's hell. So how specifically does Jesus quench the fires of hell? in us and for us. How does he help us? He does it through love. Oh, okay. Now, I am not talking about some sappy, soft, sentimental love. God loves everyone, yada, yada, yada. It's not what I'm talking about. When people don't believe in hell, they don't even understand what love is. God loves you. This is what you should say. What did it cost him to love me? Cost him? 
want nothing. He's just grandpa in the sky and just loves everybody. Listen, because we believe in hell, because we know what hell is and hell is in us, we can say, what did it cost God to love us? What was the price that he paid for us? Right? If we go out to dinner and you get my, and you get my check, I appreciate that, right? But listen, my gratefulness is probably dependent upon what restaurant we're at, right? You slide the bill over, you pick it up from Mickey D's, you put it in your pocket. I'm like, hey, thanks, man, right? You take me to Bass, you know, Bass Street Chop House. I'm like, brother, when can we do this again, <laughs> right? Why? Because your love is shown by the cost that you pay, the, the cost, right? The, the height, the depth of your love is shown by what price you're paying, Well, the same could be said of God himself. And what cost did God pay? What price did Jesus pay? Jesus, on the cross, took hell. He absorbed the hell of the earth, the hell that's in us. He took it. He became sin. He becomes hell on the cross. And God looks at him and God hates him in the moment and God punishes him and God crushes him. He's getting the hell out of us. and He's getting the hell out of the earth. And Jesus says, my God, first time in his life, he says, God and not father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He feels God forsaken in the moment. That's what hell is. God forsakenness. For the first time in all eternity, the father and the son and the spirit live in a perfect harmony and they've never had broken communion. They could always talk to one another. They could always feel one another's presence. They could always love one another. And the first time in eternity, the father and the son are separated. And we watch the passion of the Christ and it does a great job depicting the historicity of the, of the crucifixion and the violence and the brutality of the flesh and all of that. But that wasn't what hurt Jesus. That hurt him, that broke him, but the brokenness of his fellowship with God is what crushed his soul. He didn't say anything. He was beaten and whipped and and, and stabbed and all these things. He didn't say anything. But when he felt the weight of sin, when he felt the weight of separation from God, he said, why are you forsaking me? He felt that. Jesus absorbed hell for us. He took it on the cross. And this rich young ruler said, or this man here in this story says, this is what I need. This is what my brothers need. A man to send Lazarus back and go tell him about hell. They don't want to go here. Like scare the hell out of them. And Abraham says, no, I'm not going to do that. And Jesus says, even if someone rises from the dead, they wouldn't believe anyways. What was he hinting at? We have the one who rose from hell who absorbed hell, who died our death, who paid our price, who absorbed the wrath of God, and who got up again, defeating death, hell, and the grave. So how does the hell get out of us? We give it to Jesus. We get, and so that's a one-time thing. You confess your sins, you repent to him. He takes them, he absorbs them. He, he takes hell to hell, and you'll never experience the wrath of it, but then it's also a daily thing. God, I woke up, it's still, we live in this time, it's called already and not yet. 
Jesus Christ has come. He's paid the price. He's went to heaven, but he's coming back again. When he comes back again, that's when we're not going to deal with sin ever again. But right now we're fighting the battle and the battle's faith and repentance. Trusting in this moment. God, I feel the fires of hell burning in me and I want you to snuff it out today with the gospel. Pour the cool water of the gospel in my soul and remind me it is finished. It is finished. What did it cost God to love you? Until you really know and you really believe that hell is real, that it's eternal and it's burning and you deserve to go there for your many sins, you will never, never really get the love of God. Romans 5, 8, because God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cost of his son. The cost of his life. We sang it today, I think, or was in our, one of our confessions. Just the, the, the I don't know, I don't know, I remember how it was exactly said, but just the costliness of the blood of the son of God. We'll never understand it until we have a concept of hell. Let me pray. Father, words fail. We see the world, we see the brokenness, we long for it to be fixed. We hate the injustice we see. We're honest. All too often we fail to see the seeds of that very injustice in our own hearts. That can lead us to pride, thinking we're better than other cultures, other societies, other groups of people. God, we don't want to be the rich man who got what he deserved and got what he wanted in this life. We want to be the poor man one who let God help him. We want to let you help us this morning. Help us carry the weight of the crosses that we're bearing right now. Help us put to death the sin in us, to turn from the sin that so easily entangles us. Help us to know and to experience the depth of the love that you have for us that's so clearly seen at the cross where Jesus experienced hell so we don't have to. Father, would you make us into people who go out singing, go out rejoicing that the fires of hell have an expiration date and there's going to come a day when they're finally quenched in our own soul and it's such good news for us to share with our neighbors and friends and colleagues that we're your missionaries as we leave this gathering today. Pray that you'd do this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.